We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month, which obviously no pressure, whatever you've got, we are so appreciative to have, but we have awesome gifts for you. If you want a hand-addressed letter from Morgan and Isabeau, maybe with some special woe stickers, other merch, just uh, visit our Patreon. We are Womance on Patreon, or is it patreon.com forward slash Womance? We would be very proud to call you one of our patrons. Uh, I'm Isabeau. And I'm Morgan. And this is Womance, a podcast about romance novels, about thinly veiled Norway, about the weather, about political marriages, about a lot of like medical stuff, about learning someone else's religion so that you have a shot at, you know, keeping them from becoming a world-destroying being. About ice skating. <laughs> About healing someone else's trauma. About learning who your heroes really are. About bad dads. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. ourselves. This week, Womance embarks to discuss... Yet another romantic book, The Winter King by C.L. Wilson. Published in the year 2006. Do you want me to read the back of the book first, or should I place us in history? Can you place us in history? I think that might be most helpful for me personally. Listeners, I yeah. don't care what's helpful for you in this moment. How many years ago was 2006? Many. 20, 24. 19 Minus. years? 20 years. 18 years. 18. So so children born in the year 2006, they might be in college right now. Mm-hmm. That's wild. That's a Let me fun t- thought for me. The Emmys that year, The Office won its first Outstanding Comedy Series mm. Award. 24 mm. <laughs> won for Outstanding Drama. Mm-hmm. And Tony Shalhoub as Monk won Best Lead Actor. Wow. Monk. The Office and 24 should really put you in a particular zeitgeist. All right. Do you want to guess what won Best Picture? It lives on in infamy. Does that mean it was Crash? It was Crash. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nailed it. Oh, my gosh. That movie is so fucking bad. It beat Brokeback Mountain. Oh, my <laughs> God. It beat Brokeback Mountain. So that was also the year. She beat Meryl. Oh, my God. What did it beat Meryl in? Did she do Doubt that year? No. Okay. It was, she, it was, it's just a thing people say. <laughs> that was the year of Siriana, mm. Capote, mm. Walk the Line, The Constant Gardener. Ooh, I loved oh. The Constant Gardener. I remember that Oscars because uh, Rachel Weiss was extremely pregnant when she accepted for uh, Best Supporting Actress. Oh, yeah, you're a Rachel Weisz super fan. I am. 
a stand. Memoirs of a Geisha came out that year as well. Yikes. 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 2006 is a bad year, you guys. (laughs) Uh, Grammy winners, The Emancipation of Mimi by Mariah Carey, Since You've Been Gone Mm. by Kelly Clarkson. That's a jam. An iconic, I remember an iconic moment from Laguna Beach, the real OC, mm. when they the gals rented out a limo and scream sang. Which is the only way to gone. sing that song. Gold Digger mm. by Kanye West. Also a jam. You too released an album. Nobody Go cares. Figure. I mean, in the year that Crash won the Oscar. Nobody cares. So, wow. What a moment. Do you remember 2006? Uh, yeah, I do. I graduated high school that year. Oh, did you really? Did indeed. Class of 2006. I started high school the year, uh, that year in 2006. Cool, thanks. Morgan hit the, hit the ninth grade quan, as it were. Yep. <laughs> That's cool. Got my driver's license the next year. Fraught all around. Fraught all around. Fraught all around. <laughs> And into this milieu <laughs> enters The Winter King by C.L. Wilson. Now, this book, I do feel, I cannot believe it wasn't until this year that I heard about it. I agree that it is shocking to me that we hadn't heard about it, both as romance and for me personally, as a consumer of romance for much longer than you, it's, it's shocking to me that I hadn't encountered this text. That this didn't come across your desk. Yeah. Also, just as fans of short sleeve bodies of armor and terrible wigs, this cover is wonderful. Takes the cake. It is a terrible cover. It is hideous. This is a so bad it's good cover. Mm. I love that she's wearing an Elizabethan Tudor, Tudor. style modern wedding dress in mm-hmm. that it's white and it has a veil. And pearls. I love his terrible blonde wig. It's awful. He has no sleeves, but he does not feel the cold. So why would he need it? That's true. I mean, that's just in keeping with the text. All right. I'm going to read the back of the book. I'm going to stop talking about it and I'm going to be about it. One more thing about the cover. (laughs) I kind of love the pinky peachy story around it. Like, I just love the, like, I want to be in that time of day forever. It's a great time of day. I'll give you that. And whatever it is, it's not any time of day that exists (laughs) in the real world. But the acknowledgments are crazy because finally, thanks again to Judy York, the cover artist who brought winter and cams into life. You promised me no heaving bosoms, gasping mouths or naked thighs. And you came through splendidly. You even made that sparkly tornado look good. (laughs) Like... In the acknowledgement. I mean, it's true. There is nothing cool on this cover. It's true. <laughs> nothing neat. Listen, bury me in heaving bosoms, <laughs> open mouths, and naked thighs. Are you kidding me? When I read that acknowledgement, I was like, C.L. Wilson and I would not get along IRL. And I'm not sure if I'm going to get along with this book. <laughs> so did you read that acknowledgement before you read 100%, the book? 100%. I love that you read the acknowledgements. I can't anymore. I find them like such a Warshock test of both myself and an author. It is a very weird thing that I do. I don't recommend it. 
I then I immediately was like uncharmed is what I would say. Maybe this is something we should do on air. Mm. You should save it. And then we come together. That's a good idea. And we <laughs> read it together in the future. I just got so exhausted by all the like, to my darling Oh, she husband, did that too. The most wonderful man in the world. They all That do was the that. dedication. These are the acknowledgments. And usually the acknowledgments <laughs> come at the end. But in my version, they came at right at the beginning, right after the dedication. It's very generous. Too generous. All right. Well, let's read the back of the book. Let's get people set up for this one. After three long years of war, starkly handsome, winter Etrialon will have his vengeance on Summerlee's king by taking one of the man's beautiful beloved daughters as his bride. But though peace is finally at hand, winter's battle with the ice heart the dread power he embraced to avenge his brother's death rages on. Kamsin Kuroskate, princess of Summer Lee and summoner of storms, has spent her life exiled to the shadows of her father's palace. Reviled by her father, marriage to Winter Craig's icy king was supposed to be a terrible punishment, but instead offers Cam her taste of freedom. Oh, her first taste of freedom and her first taste of overwhelming passion. As fierce, indomitable winter weathers even Kamsin's wildest storms. Nice. You, you guys. Surprising her with a tenderness she never expected, Cam wants more than winter's passion. She yearns for his love. But the power of the ice heart is growing dangerous. Forces are gathering, and a devastating betrayal puts Kamsin and winter to the ultimate test. Critical point. Mm. The subtitle of this book is Weather Mages of Mistral, number one. Mm. So the weather mages are royals Mm -hmm. who can control the weather. Mm -hmm. Winter, fittingly, can make winter weather. Mm -hmm. So during this wartime, he like fully shuts down Summer Lee's means of agriculture production. Yeah, he sends a frost that never ends. Kills all their crops. And then Kamsin's power is storms, mm-hmm. and she must learn to harness the power of her electric thunderstorms. Uh, does she use electricity to revive a corpse in the book? Uh, yes, she does. She does. Uh, yes, she does. She does do lightning directly into a heart. Yes. yes, she does. Don't worry about it. But Morgan, Isabeau, it sounds like it sounds like there's not a magic sword. Uh, yes, there is. There is a magic sword. It is at the bottom of an ice pond. Mm-hmm. This is a romanticy novel. This is a romanticy novel before romanticy novels were cool. That's super true. 100%. This one's for the gang gang. <laughs> like the OG. This is, I think, probably why I didn't hear about this is because it was probably considered too sexy first. Like whatever fantasy I was reading, and too silly for whatever romance I was reading. It really falls out of the main Venn diagram of the time because there really wasn't mm. a ton of crossover. There would be romantic elements in fantasy, and there would be paranormal stuff in romance, but there wasn't like, yeah, full on martial epics, two kingdoms at war, 
And now they have a political marriage or like, you know, a forced proximity, one bed situation, which also happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true. I think the I think the kingdoms at war thing is sort of critical here mm-hmm. because we read that dragon book where there was no dragon sex. Mm-hmm. I guess we could just say that dragon book we read because none of them have delivered. But the one that everyone told us had dragon sex in it. What was that? Dragon. I want to say dragon bone, but I know that's a lie. (laughs) Dragon. Dragon. Dragon don't bone. I remember our, it was our episode. It was called Dragon Ass. Mm -hmm. Was was a great episode (laughs) title, Morgan. But we got, (laughs) thank you. But uh, yeah, go listen to that one. But that's sort of an urban fantasy. Mm -hmm. And it certainly does not think of itself as dorky enough to have suits of armor but that's honestly what i want i think i prefer the suit of armor fantasies i mean i do so you know terrible acknowledgement of what this cover is missing aside it does a hundred percent deliver on castles and court intrigue which is something that i really do admire in romance and especially the medievals where it's like yeah they're catty people just trying to undermine you in the most prosaic ways. And then there's also like a world ending something, something else, which just puts the court intrigue into like its proper perspective. Yeah. But like, that's what we spend a lot of time doing where it's like, these girls are mean to me. Why? Yeah. And I would say like a lot of medieval romances, like just go ahead and make it a romantic. Might but as that's well. not strictly true because it's actually quite difficult to build the lore and i think this book does a pretty good job with its lore i think it doesn't let it go it doesn't try to over explain itself yes it does not fall for that it does expect the reader to keep up yeah to me that feels like respecting the reader i agree being like you can take it or leave it yeah (laughs) you can poke holes in this if you want i guess or you can just like be along for the ride like there's no glaring tears no in how the what's going on here magically speaking it does help that everybody is also like associated with their thing so like winter whose name is winter comes from the winter of the craig and his power is winter storms it also helps that kamzin is called storm yeah and is storms and is like a summerly princess and like has like he talks about like what does he call her like summer lady or like fair lady and she calls him like winter lad or something they have he calls her summer lass summer lass yeah they have like weather epithets for each other which is funny (laughs) and then like other people show up and like are also their weather yeah i think as a midwesterner this book takes weather exactly (laughs) as seriously as it should as all books should yeah i think that's fair (laughs) I also appreciated that very early on, there's a scene where Winter is hanging out with his soon-to-be slain brother, and they're uh, carving ice sculptures <laughs> together. <laughs> sculpture. <laughs> and I pictured it shirtless. Duh. I was picturing like it with chainsaws, garage, which is not true. Sculpture. Yeah, they're just like making beautiful <laughs> ice sculptures together. Which comes up later it don't worry don't worry don't worry it's they not leave us hanging you think it's a forgotten cultures. detail it's not it's not cl wilson is really really good at laying what feels like perfectly inane details that then show up later she's also 
bad at laying sure. perfectly named details. There are times, and I was thinking about that. I think I highlighted a specific example um, that I would like to find. But she'll explain something that not only exists in our world, but is also perfectly mundane and doesn't actually need explanation. Yeah. But I think I was thinking like, okay, she's talking about the camp that they set up in Winter's mm. tent when they're traveling from Summerlee back to Wintergrake, mm -hmm. which is, guess the direction, north. <laughs> Correct. It's talking about the, the fire. They have like a little fire in the tent. The pipe exited through a vent flap cut into the highest point of the canvas, and the wind blowing past overhead caused a slight vacuum effect Drawing the smoke outside. It's like, thanks for explaining a chimney. <laughs> <laughs> like, why would you go through that trouble? I love it. <laughs> explaining how a chimney, not just like how a chimney works, but I wonder if there isn't something of the like, is that a strategy when you're writing a fantasy to kind of try and like alienate people from the familiar? Like everything needs explanations. So it feels like nothing is getting too much explanation or is that secretly brilliant? No, <laughs> no, I am. Um, if I want to wax poetic about what I think that this author, like why they're into describing tent flap chimneys on like an octagonal tent that I'm sure that she envisioned as period appropriate. Mm. It's probably because this person did something like rendezvous. Do you know what rendezvous is? no, it's like LARP. Do you assume everyone in the world knows what it is? Before you explain it, I need you to clarify. Do you assume most people know what rendezvous is? I have a healthy assumption that people in the Midwest might know, especially the upper Midwest where it's more popular, I think. Okay. Uh, Tell me about rendezvous. It is like LARPing. And it's going to get tough here in a second. So, like, stay with me. Okay. It's like LARPing. So people dress up in costume and they make their own canvas tents that are period appropriate. And the period that rendezvous takes place as before the United States became a country and white settlers, mainly French and English, were meeting up with indigenous folks. Rendezvous purports to believe that if you dress either as an indigenous person or as a fur trader, like this is all fine. I have never encountered an indigenous person who does rendezvous. I've only encountered whites. And they don't see like settler colonialism dress up as a problem. They like bring, they bring their own pemmican. They like smoke their tobacco stuff. It's like a whole thing. Tobacco. Yeah, dude. <laughs> Apostrophe B-A-C-C-O. This person strikes me as like that type. It's like, it's not, I don't, I don't see where the problem is. It's just like, I like to dress up historically accurately on the weekend and hang out with other people who like to do that too. Thinking of a medievalist in romance, who we both really enjoy when she's there, is Joanna Lindsay. We do love her. But she does tend to fixate on historical details and explain mundane things to you. Um, chimneys like, work the same yeah. <laughs> everywhere. There's nothing unique or interesting yeah. about what's going on in this tent. Mm -mm. There's no magical process. There's no, 
Like it it doesn't feel even like that. Like the explanation of a chimney is pretty is pretty wild to me. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it has another name when it's in a tent, but it's the same principle. Yeah, I don't think it's secretly brilliant to alienate the reader, although that would be cool if it was. I just I don't think that's what's happening. Yeah, I also don't think there's like a historicism occurring either. No, I think like the reason why I bring rendezvous up is because this person likes to overexplain certain details, like the way the dresses fit or the other clothes, just like stuff that we could easily move on from. Um, there's like a whole discussion about like the way, like how many underdresses she has to wear for her kirtle to fit. And it's like, that's not what I came here for. But that's also at least a historical detail something that's like interesting you're like oh that is different from how i live my life sure that's not a chimney but it's also not like smoke gets sucked up the same way yeah throughout history everywhere um but it's also not like magic (laughs) and it's not like the scary you know beings that this person this author created I don't know. I feel like there's a balance in this book, like tips on both sides, which ends up making it balanced. <laughs> like it's because it jumps on either end. It reminds me a little bit of the toilet yep. in the first chapter of A Court of Mist and Fury. That, though, feels to me like someone was concerned, someone who had read a lot of historical romances and was like, I want to clarify what the hygiene situation is here. And it is indoor plumbing the chimney thing (laughs) like it's so strange Mm -hmm. such a strange thing to do it also reminds me of like nancy drew books that would like explain these like really mundane details most of the time they were fun details though like her outfits i also think the internality is wild okay so like this is what i mean about like the internality this is Pretty early on, Winter is, he's been duped. He's just been tricked into uh, consummating marriage with Storm. He thought he was getting a beloved daughter of the summer court. And he ended up... For context, real quick. Storm has three super popular Mm -hmm. sisters, Spring, Summer, and Autumn, who are like famous celebrities. But Storm has been a dirty little secret since when she was a toddler, she threw a fit. Mm -hmm. That caused a storm that killed her mother. And so she's been persona non grata. So Winter is like, I'm going to marry a Summerly daughter, assumes it's going to be one of the cool ones. They put her in a thick veil. Even though he's already met Storm and he already liked her, he thought she was spunky, a mischievous maid. (laughs) Right. So they put her in a thick veil. They drug them both and they have wild sex. Yeah. They drug them with a sex drug that makes sex really uh, interesting and fun. Right. It's not like a roofie situation. No, and they drugged them both. And it was like, (laughs) yeah, a sex drug. Um, And he wakes up and she's not there, but there's way more blood on the bed than he expected from a virgin. Then he feels bad. And then this is him thinking about himself in the third person. (laughs) Okay, so like this is what I mean about like the internality is wild. So here's him. Winter hung his head in shame and closed his eyes against the silent accusation, screaming at him. 
brute monster rapist. He was a man of devastating strength with all the terrible risks and responsibilities that that entailed. Yeah. Even amongst the hard, tough men of the Craig, he stood head and shoulders above most. So then we like get this crazy description of him in a very close third. And then we get back into his head where he's like, winter man, king of the Craig. Wintermen are not plump, self-indulgent peacocks like their southern neighbors who wallow in emotion and called it sensitivity. Wintermen were disciplined, unflappable, stoic as any man must be to survive the rugged, unpredictable, oft inhospitable challenges of life in the crag. This author loves winter so much. <laughs> and winter feels himself. I like this book is so funny. So the disjuncture there is that it's in close third. So we have to assume winter and winter. It starts on his personal reflections, personal reflection. And then we get and this. So like, then he's like, I stand head and shoulders above even the other burly disciplined men of my <laughs> of my culture. And then like and right. He <laughs> with bones like winter, Craig, granite, rock hard muscle to match. That's the. That's the cuddly third. That's not Winter thinking about himself. But then we get back into Winter thinking about himself in comparison to the men of the summer court. And it's like Winter thoughts, author thoughts, which are the exact same thing about Winter, Winter thoughts. <laughs> I think there's also something about like, <laughs> what does any of that have to do with um, the amount of blood? Like, Great question. <laughs> Glad you asked. <laughs> Nothing. He's just thinking about his hard Nothing. muscles in comparison to these southern. She was thinking peacocks. of an excuse. If we can talk about how the author describes winter further, I have a passage Please. that I would like to share. I know the exact word I need to search to find it. He does wear a loincloth at he one point. He does. I'm sorry. the The phrase I have to search is pelt. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> But the word pelt get you, gets used so often. They're fucking on pelts. They're bringing pelts on camping trips. Here we go. Her fingers curved around him. Curious. Testing. What had earlier been a long, rock-hard column of flesh, guess what it, this is about, was slightly smaller now and soft to the touch. Chimneys <laughs> suck up air. <laughs> Beneath the flesh ran several long, thick blue veins. He was still damp and sticky from their last coupling, and that stickiness smelled pungent and musky, a mingling of her scent and his. The hair at his groin was thick and short, as silvery white as the hair on his head. Not wiry, and not curly as her own was, but straight and rather soft, like a wolf's pelt. <laughs> But not quite so densely furred. Beneath his penis, <laughs> large twin globes of his testicles hung heavy in a sack of flash. <laughs> now, I feel alienated from male genitals more than I ever have before. And I'm baffled by Smith forever rereading that thing about the pubic hair and trying to be like, it's like a legend. Why would that even look like on a person? Like one of those hair people for like their 
like, <laughs> I'm thinking of a very specific cartoon. It's like in the He-Man genre. Yeah, so good. And I think God. if if I have, again, the space to wax yeah. poetic about the thinking of this particular author, I think it's your like, podcast. Is, thank you. I really appreciate that. I, uh, I think it's meant to showcase Storm's like naivety exploration right like to take us through like the veins on a non-engorged penis it's like Mm. for why unless it is (laughs) for why but like I think in this author's mind they're using it as like character development yeah which is wild I think it's a I think it's a fair choice sure I think it's a fair attempt I would say that does not happen infrequently in romance mm-hmm. where we get these like super long descriptions of penises <laughs> and how they change and, and they move. <laughs> and and it is like this purpose of character development. Like we're supposed to be like, wow, she's getting so comfortable with his nudity and thereby if she's comfortable with his penis then so goes her own relationship with having sex with him. She's, we're probably going to get a cunnilingus part here in like 20 pages. But why make his pubic hair like a wolf's pelt? Weird. (laughs) (laughs) Why do that? I mean, why not? Why say sack of flesh? What What else are you going to, what do you, what are you going to call it? A bra bag? A bra bag? Like bra. A bra bag? A bra, like the Scottish version of bra. Like bra bag. The Scottish version of what? There's the thing. It's, a, it's like the thing that you wear on your kilt. And like carries oh, the little okay. bra bag. Okay. Bra. Yeah. I think we just um, answered the question why she didn't use that. <laughs> Everybody knows what two globes and a sack of flesh looks like. Do we? But who would have gotten that? Who would have gotten that bra bag? <laughs> Listen, <laughs> testicles are 50, fucking 50. weird. That's the thing. It's like I I understand what 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 the book is doing, but then it does it in a real <laughs> in a way that's so like arrestingly strange. Like explaining the setting to me and then taking me through how do, how does the smoke get out of there? <laughs> well, reader, in case you were wondering, <laughs> and then like. <laughs> normal penis stuff yeah it's like it's a little earthy sure to talk about the stickiness and the smell but like when you're in it you know people like the stickiness and the smell but then to be like his pubic hair wasn't like the regular stuff it was straight and silky <laughs> but still sparse kind of but like a wolf's pelt but like a balding wolf <laughs> wolf with mange <laughs> The carpet matched the drapes, except in the in the sense of like length and density, like, color. Color. Why? Why make his pubic hair straight? I don't know. Authorial choice. <laughs> I wonder if people think that because like redheads actually do have kind of like reddish pubic hair. Mm-hmm. I wonder if people think like naturally very light blondes have like white blonde pubic hair. Yeah, I don't know. Like the Targaryens? Yeah. Maybe she thought she was describing normal pubic hair. Maybe. For for <laughs> others, you know, and she's like trying to do her work to like She's trying to be inclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
She's trying to honor that truth. But she also does has pieces that I found like very like details that I found very grounding. Mm-hmm. Like Camzen when she's leaving Summerly, she gets really carsick mm-hmm. in the carriage. Mm-hmm. And so she starts to ride horseback. She can't ride horses, so she's having to ride with Winter. And it talks about how her hair keeps snagging in his chainmail. Mm-hmm. That's a great detail. You know, she's like, oh, it's so much better than, like, getting car sick. Like, that's wonderful. And that really, like, orients you to, like, riding on horseback with a man in shining armor through a snowy landscape can get a little over the top. Yeah. But then, like, having that kind of, like, detail, like her hair is snagging, is so good. It's so good because then the snag, he catches on that she's uncomfortable and takes his chain off. Mm -hmm which says something particular about him and the way he's going to choose to care for his new bride. It does a lot of work. It's a simple detail that does a lot of work. It does character development. It grounds you in this mm-hmm. kind of fantastical setting. And then there's like, <laughs> there's the pubic hair. There's the way he like, we go on that like journey in and out of his head. Mm-hmm. That's just like a series of compliments to himself <laughs> or to him. Mm-hmm. It's it's strange. It is a very, very strange book that feels, I think it feels that way for all the details that we've just listed, but I also feel like it's strange because of its pacing. Like it takes us so long to get to a comfortable point in their relationship in the castle and then boom, like the escalation, separation and problem of like their marriage just like obliterates like the back forth of the book. Mm-hmm. So like that was weird because like we could like this is not a short book, listeners. This book is like 890 pages. And you'd think that like, I don't know, if you're going to have a war between five armies, it wouldn't be in the last 200 pages. It might like happen sooner. I don't know. Yeah. The war is crammed into the last 200 pages and all of the intrigue. It is up until that point a pretty, like it's Mm post-war. So there's tension. She's new in the house. But it's mostly like a domestic drama. And then, so one of her conflicts when she comes to Summerlee is that, or Winter Craig, is that she has a lot of social conditioning to think that Summerlee, in spite of how cruel her father is to her and isolated she was, that it is a, you know, a superior culture It's a sensual, warm place. So she has these kinds of built-in prejudices. Mm -hmm. She also has this assumption that she is going to be killed if she can't get pregnant Mm -hmm. by trial of the mountain or whatever it's called. So she thinks she's going to get abandoned on a, a mountain if she can't get pregnant within a year. And she also discovers that if you can believe it, the king of Wintercrag has more than one person interested in him romantically. And we meet a character named Rika Villainy, who was the sister, the younger sister of Winter's previously betrothed, who Camzen's brother stole away when he also stole a uh, relic, the Book of Riddles, which he was hoping would lead him to this mystical sword so that he could reclaim his inheritance as this uh, of this hero named Roland, who Camzen is constantly citing. She's like, mm-hmm. WWRD, what would Roland do in this situation? All the time. She's obsessed. Yeah. And so she's like very devoted. She's a devotee of her of her 
nation. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting in and of itself. Like, she can't really get along with Rika. Rika is clearly trying to get some sort of French arrangement going with Winter. Mm-hmm. And then, next thing you know, things are going well. Things seem to be changing. Our little internal melodrama seems to be resolving. And it needs to resolve because if Winter doesn't fall in love, his ice heart will kill him or take over him. And then this evil, this other villain of history will take over his body. Who is essentially an ice god of old, but like a earth eater of some kind. Yeah. Those are good stakes, I think. Great stakes. And I remember at this point being like, well, her last name is Villainy. Seems like <laughs> seems like it might have been a red herring. It was not. Because then she fully is like summoning ice creatures and trying yep. to murder Hamzen on the ice. And things start to like spin out rapidly from there. Rapidly. There was like a small mystery of like, where is her brother who started this war? It sounds mm-hmm. like he's got machinations. And then everything just kind of like hits the fan. Not unlike a storm. Exactly. It's like it was bumping along at a category one and two days later without any warning. It's a category five. And we're like, thanks, climate change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a confusing and it's the pacing, but it's also the nature of the conflict becomes this more in in romance. Your conflicts tend to be these domestic Things like, what if he likes this other gal more than me? Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel good to say out loud, but that happens a lot (laughs) in this genre I vehemently enjoy. Mm -hmm. Then it just suddenly becomes a fantasy novel. There's even a moment where Winter is, spoiler alert, briefly taken over by the Ice King. And this other group of Dothraki type Water Dothraki. Yeah, Water Dothraki are like, you're... You're a badass lady. I want to marry you. Be be my new bride. And she thinks to herself like four or five times, like, if I wasn't in love with Winter, I'd definitely be into this guy. He has a beard, which is very 2006 in hindsight. A beard and like bicep tattoos and a yeah. trident. But why? Why did she need to tell us three or four times that she so would? Right. Like, there's no point to that. Except the point is, like, Rika's villainy is she's, like, stolen some ancient artifacts. She's trying to wake the Ice King god, a la, like, if I can't have winter, no one can, or everyone will have. I want to be a queen. I'll be a queen at any At any price, yeah. So she and the Ice God, who's, like, slowly taking over winter's body, is, like, whispering to him while on the field of martial battle. Look at your girl. She's hanging out with these new folks. They've got beards and tattoos, and she seems kind of into them. Why are they protecting her from you? And it's like, she's clearly betrayed you. She's hooked up back with her shitty brother who killed your brother and, like, stole your bride. She's betrayed you. Absolutely 100%. And he, in that moment of, like, having the two devils on his shoulder, believes it. And then she... Kamzen, Storm, has to take on the ice god that has taken over Winter's body. And what that brought up for me in particular, it's because it's weird on the one hand because, like, this always had to be the ultimate battle where, like, the ice god was taking over his body. But, like, why does it have to be on the battlefield? Like, I was asking, why does she have to 
why does Camson have to vocalize multiple times that she would do this guy? Yeah, she would do this guy. Because he's going to be the guy in the next book. And so, like, he has to be attractive <laughs> to the most attractive person in this one so that, like, whoever he hooks up with next, like, can confirm. <laughs> like, that's... <laughs> Three or four times is overkill. Sure, absolutely. If you must, if you must, th- for the record, she does not need to actually think... I would if I could in order for winter to be taken over by the ice king. That's true. That doesn't need to functionally happen. Yeah, that doesn't. But what was always going to happen is that there, the threat of the ice king taking him over was going to like be initiated by like a scene of jealousy. I didn't need it to happen on a battlefield. Like this was this was going to happen no matter what. Might have even been more interesting if it happened in a, a mundane setting. Right. Like the castle or when they're ice skating, like something that you didn't or expect. Tavern. Yeah. Any number of places where it just Mm. like came out of nowhere. But what it reminded me of is this crazy book called Dangerous Men and Adventurous Women. If you listen to Shelf Love, she's talked about this before. This book was written or collected a long time ago, 1992. Let me make sure that that's right. 1992. What's crazy about it? Uh, So this is a bunch of romance authors in 1992 talking about romance. And Amanda Quick or Jane Ann Krentz says... Some writers, myself included, believe that a sense of danger of risk is created in romance books by the fact that the hero plays two roles. He is both the hero and the villain. The challenge, then, the heroine faces is unique to romance fiction. She must find a way to conquer the villain without destroying the hero. And I was like, I've never seen a more clear illustration of, like, destroy the villain without destroying the hero as writ large here. Like, mostly what that tends to mean is, like, you have, you know, a dark and tortured duke who, like, f- like feels like a monster or whatever, and you have to show him that he's not. But, like, this is, like, no, she literally has to murder a fucking monster while keeping the shell of the man that she loves and then uniting his soul and shell together. And I was like, boy... That is. What's the rest of that quote? I think it. Such a task is far more complex than that faced by the protagonists of Westerns and mysteries. I think she could have easily said the protagonist of fantasies and sci-fis because this is kind of like removing the, <laughs> the interesting nuance that romance <laughs> brings to this issue and just making it like. Literal. Yeah, literal. And it's very fairy tale to be like, he has to, it's like true love's first lightning bolt exactly. or whatever that's going to like save him from the Ice King. And otherwise, he's like a perfectly like reasonable guy who's like a little, well, that's the other thing. Like his internal conflict is that he he lacks his own self-confidence because of her brother stealing away his first betrothed. And he's like, I guess I am a boring guy. He just likes to make eye sculptures. Um, except I took up this like violent vengeance tour uh, for the death of my brother. And like, th- that's an interesting conflict. And he, and he does overcome, like he has to learn to trust the person he's attracted to, which is in fact, extremely difficult for everyone all the time. You can't help but feel like a person you're attracted to is trying to trick you. Right. All of us, (laughs) especially when they like stumble in to your most vulnerable stuff where you like. Also, their dad was in a war with you. Yeah. And like (laughs) tried to kill you. And like a lot of your people died. And your brother stole the wife. (laughs) A la Paris and Helen. Yeah. Yeah. So but he overcomes that like prior to the Ice King coming and taking over his body. Prior to (laughs) Ice King cometh. It's a hat on a hat. <laughs> Yet again, like, it's a hat on a hat. Like, what are we doing here? 
I get that it's interesting and fun. And I actually found the battle scenes to be pretty cool. The weather Mm -hmm. is an interesting element of danger. Kamsin's own kind of Mm -hmm. inability to control her powers fully, but also needing to like somehow accept that they're uncontrollable is a beautiful little Mm -hmm. metaphor you can read into whatever you need to easily. And it's fun to read about. But yeah, it's it's that interesting problem of like when you're writing in a mashup that we talked about actually, I think, with Silver Flames, which is like, you know, just commit to one. Yeah. And then the other one can be features like commit structurally. You it's almost impossible to do both, I think. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think that's why they're two unique genres. (laughs) Although now that Sarah J. Mass is conquered hearts and minds and top seller lists will they ever be two distinct genres again they still are (laughs) her books are distinct uh you know romance i mean you know we talked about it you should go listen to that i think this book is an indication of like how it can go off the rails yes i think when i think about like something like for the wolf but i think for the wolf is ultimately a fantasy with romantic elements yes by hannah witten which we also talked about and I read the second book, which is even better. Agreed. The second one's so good. For the good. Throne yeah. is so good. And there's some great fan fiction um, surrounding it. There's five. It's <laughs> awesome. But yeah, it can really, I think that's, I think it doesn't really know what it wants to do. Mm-hmm. I agree. And seems to be fighting for a kind of legitimacy in both genres that it's like, you don't, if you write well, And trust your readers. You don't have to fight this hard for it. Or like you don't have to put the hat on the hat. You don't have to add these bells and whistles. It like actually detracts from the thing that you've been performing. And I think that's hard. So what what part of like distrusting her reader, the reader, do you think is present? I think maybe not distrusting. Maybe it's like trying to please the two audiences at the same time. Mm. Where it's like a fantasy audience maybe does expect a battle scene of some kind, especially since it's been played up this way or or, or expects it. And so like, why add so many other players to that battle scene? Like it would have been enough just to have the brother and it would have been enough just to have the ice giants and it would have been just enough. You know what I mean? And so like to have it be the battle of like the five armies felt crazy. And then for Kamsin to then not only have to like battle her brother and then her dad but then to like win enemies to friends to battle what's really happening which is like the ice walkers felt very like game of thrones season eight <laughs> like it, the, we are out ahead of our skis here in uh and it's like it's not satisfying anymore because we're missing the thread here of Camzen and winter which like mm-hmm. they're growing together was adorable yeah and, and and you can also clearly, because it is a romance, like, you you know it's going to work out with winter. And so, like, the only obvious solution then becomes, like, neon sign obvious. And it makes the kind of how we get there, I think, a little bit less, I mean, even for all of its uh, flashbang, a little less interesting. Mm-hmm. But I said that, you know, going through this, I did enjoy the book. <laughs> like, I had a really nice time reading it. I read it pretty quick. Same. I also, I also uh, took advantage of the Spotify audiobook. Nice. Isabel, you said earlier when we were doing our intro that you, you think it's about Norway. Mm. Do you think Winter Craig is a Norway by any other name? I do. 
but I guess it could be Sweden. I'm just more familiar with Norway. Yeah. Did you ever think maybe it could be Transylvania? I didn't. No. Mm. Well, the person who reads the audiobook thinks it's Transylvania. <laughs> thinks it's Transylvania. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Everybody's got a funny little Dracula voice. Cool. <laughs> Winter Craig. It's weird. It's not how it's so weird. the Scandinavians sound. Yeah. Yeah, they want to know what happened to their Transylvania twist. Weird. Gamson's like, it's now the mash. <laughs> I, it's it's wild. That is wild. It's a it's a really interesting choice, and not the choice I think the reader thought they were making. I think that's probably right. Unfortunately, but it adds a whole other level of confetti mm. to this blizzard. It is a blizzard with confetti in it. Sure is. This asbestos blizzard. I, I, yeah, I really enjoy, I mean, like, I read it super fast. I found the sex scenes to be, I mean, you know, as long as we're not post-coital, they're pretty great. They are pretty great. I do feel like they're post-coital reflections, i.e., I'm glad I'm not a plump little pigeon. (laughs) Or, like... (laughs) The revelation of his pelt, or... Of his, like, wolf fur pubic hair they also like have these like epic sex sessions where it's like they'll have like have sex like seven or eight times in a night Mm -hmm. (laughs) also like three or four times and it's not and the author chooses to show and not tell Mm -hmm. uh which is brave but yeah i mean i think especially in the beginning of the book i really enjoyed them getting closer together I understood their kind of reservations. Mm-hmm. I thought that the, that was like earned and balanced against the context of the rest of the book. There was this kind of looming threat, and this might get into my weirdest part, if I may. Sure. The villains in this novel are so ding-dong and villainous. Yes, they are. And maybe that's why the reader thought Transylvania. Because mm. they were like, here we are, full camp. Like, her father prior to her getting engaged to winter she wants winter demands to be put up in the summer king's dead wife's quarters Mm -hmm. when he comes to the palace and so camzin wants to go and fetch her mother's diaries that have been moved out of the uh, and a few other items that have been moved out of the room and so she poses as a maid Uh, when winter meets her he finds her very very winsome, very charming. And her father founds, finds out about this indiscretion, even though Winter doesn't, and he beats her severely and then decides that she's going to be the daughter to marry Winter as a sort of bonus punishment to her. He beats her so badly that all the magical healers in all the land couldn't fix her within like seven days to get mm-hmm. ready for a wedding. And then he's also, uh, you know, Rika villainy is not only, like, has a crush on her husband, she's fully raising ice giants mm-hmm. to go and try and kill Camzen, which is overkill. Absolutely. Not only that, but she, like, kills a bunch of people of Winter Crag. She, like, mm-hmm. desecrates a holy site with, like, the special spear to get the ice heart. Like, she, yeah. she's very villainous. She traps her sister yeah. in the ice puddle, the magic Leaving ice Leaving her cube. a white walker. Yeah. Not and nice. And she also, we, we've got to talk about Camzen's older brother who yeah. shows up and almost sells out his sister every opportunity he gets. Multiple even though times. he's her 
ultimate hero. And yeah. she realizes he's kind of a selfish jerk who's irresponsible. Yes. At best, you know, and like, but irresponsible in a way that like he allowed his men to rape and pillage an entire community rather than like oversee them or whatever. Yeah. Like it's, they are all so baroquely bad. And I think that threat is apparent when we, because we know her father. Mm-hmm. And I guess we should have just taken it. Even her lady's maid who betrays her, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, as soon as the betrayal is revealed. Well, her name was Belladonna. Yeah, her name's Belladonna and she's poisoning her. <laughs> yeah. like We it's... have to be so serious. But maybe that's the thing. I don't know. I'm kind of hitting something now. Like Rika Villainy, Belladonna. Maybe this is camp. I'd believe you if I hadn't read the acknowledgments. <laughs> I would I would be fully on board with your theory if I hadn't read the acknowledgments. I think this is 100% in earnest. I think this author thinks she's being very clever. I think that's what makes camp camp, though, is like you can't really be intentional with it. You have to be quite sincere. And I think she is very sincerely writing like Belladonna. She is. And... You know, maybe she's doing that thing where writers will include like really obvious signposts so that the readers feel smart and then like the book more. Maybe. I don't know. It's if that's what she's doing, she she should uh she should hide her cards a little bit more. But I mean, I think in any case, like, listen, we're ragging on it. We're making excellent points against it, but we both very much enjoyed the ride. We did, one hundred percent. I definitely got the second one. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I don't know. What's your weirdest part? Your weirdest part is that they're so villainous? Yeah. Well, my weirdest part was like, they're so obvious and over the top. And now I'm like, actually, I think that might be one of the winsome traits of this book. I think that might be like the whole deal. I didn't think that was particularly winsome, but it is in keeping with Cam and Winter being themselves, right? Like he is Winter of Winter Crag and she is Storm. So like there is that to it. Maybe they're all just like the X-Men where it's like, oh, Professor X and oh, Wolverine and oh, Rogue. Like maybe that's it. Where people have villain names and superhero names. I don't know. In any case, I think that there is something successful happening here in spite of all of this like ham-fistedness sure but i think like what's most successful like rika feels dangerous from the beginning because of the court intrigue and because of how isolated camson is and how little winter is doing to help her and then the other people in the court who are like trying to point this out to him are like you're leaving her to like flounder she's floundering like you need to like do something like those sort of like intimate moments where like we see him mm-hmm. as like a less competent human being because he like does like her but doesn't want her to have too much power over him and he's like nobody cares about what Rika thinks and it's like you're, you're silly if you think that right and that those parts were deeply winsome like when they go ice skating together amazing and like when yeah. she obliterates one of those like weird ice gorn creatures with lightning to save him when his guts are hanging out amazing like so you think it's too good so like camp though it's it's not that it's good it's that it's sort of successfully bad and it the intention cannot be to be bad. Right. And I think in that way, this book might be landing. Because, yeah, I think I agree. I think, like, 
you know, the stuff like the ice skating scene you're talking about, I love. And I remember quite particular one of my favorite parts is that he's like putting the skates on her feet mm-hmm. and she's feeling bashful mm-hmm. and she's like, are you disappointed that I'm not one of my sisters? And he's like, no, I was surprised, but you were actually the sister I most wanted to marry. Mm-hmm. And then he like ice skates off. I mean, that's not highbrow. No, it's not. <laughs> and it's not subtle, It, but it is. It is when it's a Hallmark movie moment. Sure. And it's likable in that way. I guess I don't really think of Hallmark movies as campy generally. Some of them are. I felt like the ice skating moment is different than the way that like Rika's ultimate villainy or her father's Baroque villainy. Like that felt different and more successful to me because it felt more lived in maybe or like the The ice skating the ice skating or like the reveal of his ice sculpture memory palace okay i want you to listen to yourself (laughs) here (laughs) i really need you to take a moment i think you need to step back because the example of the villainies i think are are like oh this person is bad and i think whenever it's like oh this person is good it's still over the top obvious (laughs) But you're like, but that's actually well done. And it's like, you can't just say that because you would rather be introduced to an ice sculpture memory palace than Rika Villainy or Belladonna the Handmaid. I did love Belladonna's Baroque Villainy. She's like, this is for Summerlee. The the minute the... Yeah. Like, the minute she walked into that goddamn ice sculpture memory palace and had that stupid moment where she was like it's his family it's it's not stupid but it's It's so moving it's not Dostoevsky okay (laughs) Dostoevsky wishes he created an ice sculpture palace memory art so many crumpled pages that Dostoevsky wrote of characters walking into a full-blown ice sculpture memory palace. He and wishes. He like, no. <laughs> Love is for suckers. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's just going to die now if I can't have my ice sculpture memory palace. Yeah. That's exactly Dostoevsky in a nutshell. Also paid by the word. <laughs> the minute they walked in there, I was like, they're going to have sex in this room. Yeah, they are. And it's <laughs> it's just such a classic, like, romance novel thing where like if there's a room where someone has a hobby they're having sex in that room it's true i got beef with it actually i'm a little annoyed by it okay i think i think it's a little bit intentionally saying people are their hobbies Mm. and now you're like except in the metaphor is like you accept and love them Mm -hmm. for their for their hobby their eccentricity and now you're having sex Like, a hobby isn't an eccentricity. I think making memory seams of your happy childhood that you walk amongst, also they're living size. They're like ice mannequins of whole scenes, right? Like, there's a picnic scene. There's, like, another scene by the lake. They're, like, fully realized, like, ice scenes. But it's also that thing of The Bachelor where every contestant when they have like one-on-one time is like family is the most important thing to me. And he goes like, Oh my God, family is so important to me too. It's like, yeah, people who don't even like their families, their families are super important. 
Important is a pretty vague term, really. <laughs> yeah, but it's it important is like, can be negative. Wow, wow, his family, his hobby. So of course they're gonna have sex in there. Yeah, what a pretty place to have sex in front of his the gazing eyes of his dead parents and his slain brother. It's not measured. It's not thoughtful. <laughs> you know, it's likewise. Rika villainy is not measured. Is not thoughtful. It is what it is, and it is a good time. It is a good time. What was your weirdest part? Race. Rice. Race. Race. <laughs> Rice. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, man. as you can imagine, the people of Wintercrag are white. Maybe. The people of Summerlee, they're pretty exclusively described as white. And the only reason why I know that is because when the Dothraki sea mariners show up, they are people of color. And then this is this is my weirdest part, because it felt to me like and maybe you, this happened to you. It felt to me like storms physical descriptors yeah. changed. Like she always has black curly hair with like a white storm streak going through it. Yeah. And at first she has like a rosy blush. And then it's like a tan blush. And we'd never heard her nipples talked about before. And so then like suddenly she has brown nipples, which is like, maybe this is all me. And like I was missing my cues. But like it felt like she was not a woman of color in the first half. And then she became a woman of color in the latter half, especially when these other folks of like very obvious color, like they're described as being people of color show up. And I went back to like read. I was like, is this, this is, this is, this could be me. This could be me. But 100%, like her skin was not talked about in the same way in the two different places. And that was weird to me because like maybe it had meant like maybe that's who she was at the end of the book was how, who she was supposed to be all along. But the cover really set some expectations yeah. mm -hmm. for me. Um, and then, of course, the acknowledgement and thank you of the cover artist set those expectations yeah. as well. And so by the end, she is she seems to be coded as a woman of color. I had the opposite journey. Ah, interesting. Also, real quick, white ladies can have brown nipples, too. Sure. Absolutely. I caught myself thinking that I was like, bad assumption. Yeah. Yeah. And now every now everyone knows the color of your, of your nipples. A lot of people know the color of my nipples. I went to an old girl's school. <laughs> We've just added five more. <laughs> yeah, I went on the opposite journey. I, th I think I remember her hair in the beginning being described as like coily. Mm -hmm. And everything was about how dark she was in comparison to winter. Mm -hmm. And then by the end, it was like, Oh, maybe not. I can't remember what it was. I think it might have. I can't remember what it was that changed my mind. But then there's also something about like the spelling of her last name makes me think that maybe she's supposed to be Italian. Yeah, same. And like that was a thought that I had where I'm like, what? And like, what is this? It was it was weird. Right. It was it was. And it only became weird to me, I guess, when these other people showed up because then it, yeah. like, it felt much like something that hadn't really been talked about in details, suddenly there were a ton of them and they felt disorienting yeah. to me. Yeah. And like they have green hair and stuff. Mm -hmm. I went on the opposite journey 
So I think there is something, I don't know. I think the cover is uh, an indication. Mm-hmm. But I think there's something about like in this world, like race would just be physical characteristics, right? Yeah, it doesn't seem to have anything. It's like, it doesn't have a valence like that. Race, yeah. right. So it's not even really like race. I mean, we talked about how in Neon Gods, it like made a point about like in mm-hmm. Hades, there was a older Latina woman mm-hmm. <laughs> shopping at a flower shop. And like, it was like, well, you know, interesting. And so it's just physical characteristics. There doesn't seem to be like any like racial subjugation being practiced mm-hmm. or like even, I mean, Winter of the Craig is so generous. It's hard to even imagine that he's not like, com- it's hard to imagine that he even lives in a castle surrounded by finery. Stratification is so secondary here, which is interesting for like a romance novel. Like it exists in that he's a king, but yeah, it doesn't really in practice. Seem to he exist. like goes to the local tavern. Right. And which also sets Summerly apart because that is, doesn't seem to be a practice. Her father, the king or Falcon are performing. And then when the yeah. Cal Burnins show up, they for every 100 boys born on Cal, the islands of Calburn, only one is a girl. So women are revered. Mm-hmm. Inherently. I mean, I I think like it's hard because we are trained via our socialization to like try and identify race Mm -hmm. because that informs how we understand context. But sometimes books just, I mean, I don't know if this is intentional, but I think here is a good example of kind of a racially ambiguous character Mm -hmm. and appropriately. So, especially since, you know, this author isn't, doesn't seem to be trying to grab diversity recognition Mm -hmm. or anything like that. But it it does seem to like be an example of how physical appearance we really want to (laughs) attribute some deeper meaning to it because of who we are as, you know, people who live in a world outside of this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I hadn't really considered it, but yeah, I think I changed my, the way I pictured her. And I'm not sure what detail made me feel like, oh, she's lighter skinned or something now. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. And for me, it was obvious when the Calburns showed up because like the discussion just like seemed to change. And you're right. Like there's nothing in this text to make me read that there's any kind of like racial class or anything like that. It was just like, I noticed a dissonance and I was like, oh, this doesn't, this feels different in a way that's like jarring. So it was my weirdest part. Yeah, there is something different about how the Calburnans are discussed, for sure. I do think that's really interesting because I hadn't really realized I was doing it or that I do do it when I read fantasy. But I think, yeah, even here as like readers, we tend to try and like input something. And it can be, you know, I think about uh, the Hunger Games, the casting Mm -hmm. of Rue and all the backlash around that. Shortly after this book was published, yeah, people trying to make a point by being like, well, here in the book is where Rue is described as having these feature- physical features. And so it's reasonable to cast a actress of color in this part. But then it's like, that shouldn't even matter. Like, this is it's insignificant. All made up. Yeah, <laughs> this is so insignificant. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and yet I think we're always trying to like, 
attribute that like that is how deeply ingrained it is in our in our little in our little reptile brains i think it's our reptile brains but i also think it's something like more sophisticated i think it might be no i think it's like it's unconscious in this text and we had the same thing about when we were talking about silver flames with the illyrians right like they're coded as maybe not of color all the time although cassian seems to have darker skin i don't know maybe i'm just making that up But they they definitely are subjugated they're subjugated and they're also coded as savage and when you and i had the shorthand of describing the calburnans as the dothraki mm-hmm. like not wrong because they're a hundred percent described as having fewer clothes a warrior class of dudes with long braids and beards mm-hmm. but that somehow i mean it doesn't class them with a particular kind of like primitiveness in this text, certainly, but they are different than the men of Wintercrag and their weapons are different and their culture is different. And the men of Summerly. And the men of Summerly. And I think because they're being, and I think there is something in like how they are presented right differently, but unlike the Illyrians, like I think Kamsen is super flippant about them and we're supposed to be close to like Kamsen's perspective at all times. And kind of understand her as having good ideas by the time they show up. And she's very dismissive of them and like shocked. But I don't think, I think the Illyrians are intentionally and repeatedly described explicitly as a lesser people yeah. in Silver Flames. And that's not really happening here. That's true. What was your sexiest part? Making melting ice sculptures of my mom and my little brother and my dad. They're murdered. all dead now. And we're having I sex d- near them. The ice sculptures really of them are looking at my naked butt bop up and down. <laughs> yeah. I did really love that. <laughs> I did. Yeah, of course. It was magical. It was magical. I'm trying to think if there was another. I I liked the sex decathlon that they went on to that ends with her on top for the first time and her being like, I didn't think we were going to be monogamous, but now I want it. I remember this part so clearly because it's another example of her being dumb. <laughs> because he says... Get astride me like a horse. And she says, I don't know how to ride a horse. And he says, here, put your leg over my hip. And I was like, wait, <laughs> just because she doesn't know how to ride a horse doesn't mean she's, like never, she's never seen, seen anyone a person do it? on a horse. Yeah. <laughs> like, I so think funny. She, she wasn't her first time having sex. I think she no. could have figured it out. She could have figured it out. Yeah. But I remember. Yeah. When she decides she wants to be monogamous, I got a little, I got a little like, <sighs> yeah. I mean, I love that jealousy like, shit though. But it's like assertive and it takes her as much by surprise as it takes him, mm-hmm. which is like a lovely thing to have happen. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was really sexy. And then she falls asleep after declaring this and he's like, I mean to keep all of my vows. And I was like, yeah, you whisper that to her <laughs> while she's asleep. <laughs> sexy <laughs> i love that shit that shit mm. no does All that day long. is that sex scene at the palace mm-hmm. after they arrive okay mm-hmm. well then that leaves room for my favorite sex scene 
And that is the tent sex decathlon. Nice. Camzen, he finally stops. He stops the motorcade delivering them back to Winter Craig. He's like, she's got to take some time off because her dad beat her up so bad. She's got to heal. And she creates a storm that saves her life. He like dismisses everyone. And she wakes up from like the storm that saves her own life. And he walks in because he is free of the of the social mores. He is available to wear a loincloth and furry boots. And I was like, you go like, yeah, you. Yeah. okay." And like, there's not enough. We even when we read the caveman romance transcendence, there wasn't a scene of a hand job through a loincloth. That's true. And truly, these scenes are decathlons. So there's a bathtub part where he's pouring cold water over her hot water part. Oh, my gosh. There's fur pelts, both his, his and, and on the bed. on others. <laughs> That's probably what made her think of it. <laughs> probably. Who knows what she would have related it to if she was in a Pier 1 Imports, for example. It's <laughs> a good one. I think this is a great steamy book for people who want to read something that they could find in Barnes and Noble labeled steamy. This is yes. this is a great example. Now, the only reason the tent sex scene is my favorite sex scene is because I am respecting my own moratorium on the first sex scene cannot be the sexiest part. But that one sounds like it takes place in Poison Ivy's lair from Batman and Robin. Mm. And... Um, like she goes into one of her sister's rooms because they're trying to mm-hmm. keep the ruse up. Autumn. And it's like dark and full of plants. <laughs> and it smells like autumn to try to trick winter's senses. Yeah. And they're both like on some kind of electric Kool-Aid and like yeah. just, yeah, going for it. And there's veils and there's like take my breath away top gun mm-hmm. blowing chiffon everywhere. A visual feast for the for the imagination, just like the, that one's very good. Just like the ice sculpture, Ugh, one I love the ice sculpture memory palace, ice sculpture so good. Meet me at the ice sculpture. <laughs> <laughs> Meet me at the second one from the left. It's not where my parents are murdered. It's where my brother's still alive. <laughs> and that is where I shall take you. <laughs> Honestly, totally get why the TikTok that you sent me. Says that Sarah J. Moss uses this as inspiration. Totally get it. Un, by the way, unbacked up. <laughs> totally fine. Didn't cite their sources. Rumor has it. Believe it. This was fun. This was super fun. I read it super fast. I was a little taken aback in the beginning. I thought it was too silly. But it sweeps you off your feet in the best way possible. Yeah. And you really start rooting for these two crazy kids. The winter craig lad and the summer lass (laughs) agreed oh and i also want to acknowledge another weirdest part christy the child who Mm. befriends cams after kicking her in the stomach and causing a miscarriage (laughs) which he feels really bad about and it turns out it wasn't just his fault there was somebody who actually tried to poison her as well belladonna but christy which sounds like christ he's fine He's totally fine. His parents were murdered. Yeah, he's an and orphan. slain in the war. Yeah. But he's an, he's really cool. He's a scrappy orphan who does a ton, but nothing story wise significant. He's like a loyal, like artful dodger. 
Yeah. He teaches her how to pick locks. We don't need those in, in romance novels where we're having sex in the ice sculpture memory palace. I was happy. But like we do in romantice fiction where you take 900 pages. What is this book without Christy? It's still itself. Yeah. What is it with the addition of Christy? It's still itself. <laughs> exactly. Christy. <laughs> It just he just served to make me feel uncomfortable about Kamsen's <laughs> mental and social development, which I guess I should she have anyway. So alone. Because, yeah, she was kept hidden in a castle forever. So like of course she's gonna be like, my best friend's a 12-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't need to read that after the Lloydcloth stuff. Like <laughs> I just need to think of her in that way. But you did. Womance or no man's? Womance. Really? 100%. Oh, yeah. No question. I'm going to recommend this. <sighs> you know what? No man's. All right. You're going to revisit this in 11 months. I'm when we already do... falling deeper in love with it. Some... I know. Like, in retrospect, why are you doing this? Why are you being contrarian? <laughs> like, just fucking say it's a womance. No. It doesn't cost you anything. I don't want you. You already bought the book and listened to it. All right. It's a romance. Yeah. That's what I thought. I Get was bullied. This is what bullying looks like. This is not what bullying. I just don't want you to fall into Kids, the trap. It does not get better. You <laughs> don't want you to fall into the trap that we fell into with this one's for the troops. <laughs> Mermaid's kiss. No, that is still. No one should read that whole book, okay? <laughs> Only parts of it. Definitely I, do highlights. I have recently been thinking about the Tinkerbell sex scene part. <laughs> which one is that? Would oh, the she, sex magic part when he Which she turns herself. Him? Okay, which she the mermaid from a mer mm -hmm. Okay, we also have this episode of Mermaid's Tale. You should go listen. Definitely go mm -hmm. listen to that one. It's a very good one. Is it called a Mermaid's Tale? No, it's a mermaid's kiss. Because <laughs> it's the sex magic of her virgin's blood. I don't know. It's that's part's tough. That part's hard to follow. The as is her cloaca. He <laughs> But what's not is the naked mole rat that turns itself into a bed. <laughs> that is Jerry that Lewis bed. setting his piano on fire. That's so hard to follow. But there's one part where in addition to being a mermaid who can grow legs. She can also shrink herself down to pixie size and she just performs like she can like oh, yeah. fully wrap around his her Dick arms around his wiener. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that part. That part is really weird. And that goes exactly as you're imagining it is how it goes. And I have been thinking about it in the context of the most recent Crescent City novel. So Ooh. if anyone wants to DM me and we can talk about it. There you go. That's the bonus chapter I'm interested in. Leave Azriel's business. Azriel's business is not my business. Until it is our business with the next book. Wow. Oh, I, have, I have news for you, by the way. All right. Oh, no. All right. With that. Loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mm -hmm. Wooly guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted and produced by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. 
Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. Editing and mixing for this episode was done by Steve Keel. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womans and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womanspodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time.